This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. I'm Jarrett Lay, a dual degree graduate student in the Architecture and Critical Curatorial and Conceptual Practices programs here at GSAP. Speaking today with Sir Peter Cook, one of the founders of the radical experimentalist group Archigram. Cook is currently building with Gavin Robottom the studio Cook Robottom Architectural Bureau, or CRAB. Welcome, Sir Cook. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. My first question uh, is regarding your career, which has been uniquely structured in relation to academic institutions. First, in its dramatic departure from the teachings of the AA, then as a professor and a juror, and eventually chair of architecture at the Bartlett until 2006. How has your history of disrupting norms of the academy informed your role in leading them? I'm not sure that I've been disruptive. I mean, I think one of the useful things is if you are visibly doing a lot of things outside, it makes you a stronger academic. I have strong feelings about this. I'm not... Um, I, for a long, 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 long time, I said, oh, I'm just a joke academic. You know, it's only when I started to accumulate several professorships, I had to admit... <laughs> <laughs> Probably, and my, and, and the, my payroll, you know, was mostly from academia. Um, I, but I really do feel that. I think that in, in recent years there's been a tendency for a kind of, particularly in the UK but elsewhere, a, a, a disengagement between academia on the one hand and offices on the other hand. And I have noticed that, that uh, a lot of very clever people in schools of architecture, you know, they become experts on Foucault, but then they have to go into an office where they just have not done a lot of architectural observation, and uh, then they just do what the office does. So I rather crave for a a lost period when the professors in architecture were building. The discussion was mostly about the history of made objects, and the offices were therefore more easily threatened by people with ideas because the ideas were about actually what they were doing. Um, I say this particularly in an American context because I think it's very, been very noticeable over the, over the many years I've been coming here. Uh, on the other hand, there are a few, there are a few oases here and there <laughs> that I tend to gravitate towards where there are still people designing things and talking about them in school. So, which is to say, then, to develop a set of potentially transformative ideas that actually have traction in the production of architecture professionally? Yes, I think that, I think that um, in other words, although it can be seen that my own work has been, for want of a better word, experimental or, or disruptive or concerned sometimes with even anti-building buildings, mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless, it has been concerned with the business of architecture rather than the business of abstracted culture. So then, within that sort of uh, spectrum of theoretical considerations on the spectrum of Foucault, and then all the way into these basis in uh, 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 building construction and the production of architecture more broadly, uh, uh, where do you, uh, among these various sites of, say, uh, discourse in production, may they be design schools, biennials, exhibitions, professional practice and competitions, where do you see the most disciplinary revolution coming from today? I think the most uh, 
considerable revolution is going to come in the means of production. I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, <laughs> but it's clear that, that suddenly there will be a kind of collapse of the old relationship of the guy in the, at, at the desk, whether the desk is inhabited by a laptop or whatever it is, or, or a robot or whatever. There will be a collapse between the guy at the desk and the manner in which the building can happen. And I think that I would like to see a new kind of architect uh, develop who would be more or less like a kind of extremely developed, sophisticated version of an airline pilot who actually is, in a sense, driving the, though, though control under certain spheres of control, the none was driving, driving the, the thing that's doing the thing, uh, rather than detachment. Now, what that would do to the profession, I don't know, because I think there are a lot of... I think there's also the corollary of that, is that perhaps following that up could be a new kind of architect, which I would think of rather like the village postman or the village policeman, who'd be like a kind of craft, helpful person, like the village doctor, the village... Maybe they're lost tribe also, but where in smaller communities you have a local guy, there's always somebody up the street who is some sort of architect, is a kind of agent for dealing with whatever you may need in terms of, you know, sticking a kitchen on or building a, an apartment block. But that the actual, then that is handed over at a certain scale to a completely different kind of thing. Whereas at the moment, the threatened species is the middle, the, the sort of person who says, well, I'm sort of doing the building, but actually, already, you know, the, the, the uh, tendency for a lot of offices now to insist on a certain kind of procedure, you know, a certain computer proce procedure so that all, all the services and everything goes together in one drawing, means that there's already a kind of standardised response. And that the a few sort of art buildings are allowed on the fringe. But what really strikes me in London and, and, and obviously elsewhere is that there are, there are almost now standard responses. You, you can almost predict what the building is going to do without even seeing the building. And we've returned to a kind of, you know, the architect is involved in facadism, if, if, if at all. But the most interesting people in the field are really, really involved in, in that wing of the digital world which is concerned with actually how stuff is grown and how stuff might, the morphology of it and, and the process of it. I haven't done very much building. Okay, in later life I have started doing buildings and, and one is still struck by how primitive the process still is. You know, how it still blokes on a, on a scaffolding and, a, you know, people botching, even in... in, in quite sophisticated countries, still botching corners and covering up things and so on, but, but the basic formulae are, are there. And I think it's um, in a curious, curious moment where there has to be a rethink of the whole thing, not of the tradition of architecture. I mean, I still think it's very useful to see how buildings in the past responded to their culture and how uh, interesting, I wouldn't say good architecture, but interesting architecture was always a kind of compromise between um, common sense logic and imagination and symbolism.
I think the symbolic aspect becomes very, very interesting because uh, it's, it's, symbolism is wrapped up in all, all sorts of kinds of, of uh, territorial jargon. And, and, and I mean, I, you know, I'm a victim of it too. You know, I make, when I do make buildings, I make them do certain things which, in a way, they don't have to. Well, they don't have to do them like that. They could do them in other ways. And I'm conscious that I prefer them to do them in a certain sort of way because it sends out signals, because it tends to, it, it makes references, uh, and it, it subscribes to kind of statement of a moment in time or a position or an attitude towards objects again, you know, so that you make, you, in a way, uh, we all tend to make symbolic objects. I mean, you only have to drive down mm -hmm. the street outside. You can see that the, the, the generic blocks are the same, and the elevator positions are probably exactly the same because there's logic to that. And then people massage the thing, you know, in the same way that you decide to grow a beard, but maybe next year you'll decide not to grow a beard <laughs> and wear a hat, you know. Uh, you're still there inside it. So this kind of territory interests me, but I mean, we don't spend... We don't spend enough time talking about that. I have uh, my most respected younger friends, and being a certain age, nearly all my friends are younger than myself, um, are in, in, in this slipstream territory. They were trained and are probably, the ones I'm thinking of, quite knowledgeable about historical architecture. They're quite knowledgeable maybe about certain philosophical ideas. They can certainly... They certainly understand a Corbusian building, you know, they can certainly understand why Herzog and de Meuron are doing something this year that they weren't doing last year. But they themselves are off into a territory which is almost scary because its implications are that you, you will be able to grow buildings, that you will be able to manipulate space that you don't already, you know, you don't need drawings. Mm -hmm. You yes, can certainly. bypass the drawing process virtually. But I'm somebody who loves drawing, you know, I mean, I, 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 I enjoy so that it, the drawing becomes a kind of masturbatory exercise. You know, I do it because I'm an old person who likes drawing in the sense that some people like drinking tea or, you know, some people like uh, playing cards, but it has, it almost has a card playing yeah. degree of re relevance to, 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 but I mean, you know, I, I won't see that. I think it's, it's, it's coming at the edges. And the curious thing that it's probably coming via uh, societies that don't necessarily understand it any more than I do, but are willing to see what happens if it happens. So that, you know, some of these things happen in somewhere like China. But the the equivalent of the chattering classes that you would get in the States or in England or France or somewhere uh, don't have the mandate to respond in quite the same way. You know, somebody with power, money, power and influence says, right, do it. And it's done and it's there and it's sort of shocking and surprising and intriguing. But there's not a lot of chatter down the line, but there will be. And I think that's interesting in a university such as this, which probably has a high, as, as all the places I know, has a high proportion of Asian students, who will sooner or later go back and set up their own good architecture schools. It's happening already. They won't have to come to 
Colombia or places in London or whatever. They'll have their own. And maybe the smarter ones are already thinking that we don't have to do we don't have to do the old Western method. I don't know. I'm just speculating. I'm just using your interview as a, <laughs> a sort of thinking aloud, actually. I haven't had this conversation before. I've had, I've had it with a few cronies or bits of it. So the the sort of the you mentioned earlier these sort of buildings that transcend in a sense uh, the need for drawings in a manner that, that mm. you favor in your own production. Do you do you wait or see these sort of algorithms and computational methods that drive that production as of equal weight um, in these new regimes of architecture? They might be. I mean, I don't understand them. I can't do them. We in our little office still make cardboard models and, and you know then and scribbles and then the computer takes over but it takes over after the cardboard models and scribbles have made the investigation so is that is that is that where your what does it look like in your office with within crab is that is that the product yeah, the design cardboard models and people at, at small computers you know but eventually is there a moment of translation in your office where it goes from the no it goes backwards and forwards I think and and Gavin, my uh, working partner, he he uh, interestingly, when he was a Bartlett student of mine, he um, he never admitted to being computer literate at all. And he does beautiful drawings. He's very known for doing beautiful, beautiful sketch sketch drawings, not the kind I do, but sketch drawings. And then when he went to the GSD, he was actually a TA in computing. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he came back, he um, he, as soon as he was in a position to delegate, he died. I, I, I rarely see him on the actual computer. He, ca he carries one of these like I do. <laughs> but he can do. Uh, but he then, now he, he, he's in his late 40s and he argues that, uh, you know, the kids can do it faster and better and they're, they're up to new programs and stuff but the but our friends all mostly in, all in the Bartlett I mean they, they have you know which is a school that already has I don't know 15 robots and god knows what and people are growing stuff they're growing they're growing bits of building on on the outside wall it's not a conversation it's there they, they can point to it and you can see yeah. it happening that's where it gets scary and these are our close friends you know mm -hmm. these are the people we but those same close friends, as I said earlier, actually can discuss Corbusier with you mm -hmm. if you happen to want to. Or, you know, something that's going up on the corner. Or, you know, the difference between the Baroque and the Rococo or whatever it might be. You know, it's interesting. So they are in, even themselves an intermediate generation. I mean, the danger becomes, I think, if, if the people developing those techniques, I mean, the, 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 the kind of anoraks, what do you call them in the States? We call them either boffins or anoraks, so the, kind of, the kind of guys that sit in a corner, you know, and mm -hmm. never come out and only sit on the computer. That if they become detached from the tradition of architecture, so in a funny way, I'm a traditionist, I think that there has to be a sort of carryover, if, uh, even if it's only conversational. Even if it's only in discussion, there has to be at least a psychological carryover that what you are still producing in the end is some kind of building in that it is an enclosure or whatever. But that even then, you know, in my early archigram days, one would have blown <laughs> open and said, yeah. well, you know, after all, Wellington yeah. Boot is, a, is, a, is, yeah. an, is part of architecture and so is an umbrella 
And where do you draw the line? So as a pullover, you know, yeah. where do you draw the line? Or the canopy or the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I, to, to shift gears a little bit, I'm curious. So here at Columbia G, GSAP, a, a great deal of energy has recently materialized around architecture's capacity to engage in political resistance and radical communication. I'm curious if the story of Archigram holds any lessons for the abilities of students today to engage in transformative architectural communication. I don't know. We were, we were curious in that we were not particularly political. In fact, I, I, I think some of the Archigram members are now dead. And I would be hard put to tell you what they voted. I would guess that they voted left. But it might have, the odd one might have voted right without it affecting the conversation. That sounds... I mean, in, in, I've just been discussing with your... Dean, you know, the whole predicament that we're in now, post-Brexit, post-Trump, yeah. post-God knows, Marie Le Pen knows the next, and God knows where it'll go. And it's scary, and I don't think I lived through such a scary time as this. You know, the, the, the in, in the UK, the left and the right were, were not so... You know, I lived through a long period where there wasn't much... Certain different, but, but not dramatic, particularly in our country. It's not been a political country until recently. And even now it's probably less politicised than some, but it is a scary period and I would expect the educated... I mean, I think the real schism is between the relatively educated and the uneducated, because I think it's a proportional difference now. I think in, you know, in the generation, say, before mine, the educated were a, a, a relatively small minority. They had the power, money and influence, but the, they had to, in a way, liberalise their ideas. Now the, it's, the, the balance is somehow different. It's all very weird. Do you yeah. think that architectural representation has the capacity to st- sustain a new public imaginary that could begin to open up a more um, inclusive and democratic discourse? Uh, in theory, but I don't know whether many of the people in architecture have the balls to do it or have the, have the talent to really make it... Commu- I mean, I think somebody like Lebius Woods, for example, to take a particular case, was a brilliant example of somebody who was extremely moral, was extremely articulate and could draw anything and convince you through drawing that the impossible was possible. And he was highly political in fact, uh, you know, he was extremely much more than myself. Uh, I don't think there are many of those sort of people around. Um, I think it's interesting, though, to look back at the, the role of the sort of agitprop trains and so on, the, the, the Russian period, except that when you, when you read and dig around and get people who know about that period of history, it was still, in fact, a cultured elite who were using the rhetoric in order to usefully apply their their aesthetic wishes, mm-hmm. I don't mind that. I mean, I do it myself. But mm-hmm. but uh, I, I, you know, there's a there's a I, to what extent you can, you know, to what extent architecture can affect the um, the populist world is a very tricky thing, in, in, difficult in to discuss here. So, you know, in what is not a is is already an elite institution, difficult for me to discuss because I've grown up most of life, my life in London. I am I am a sort of elitist. I'm an achievist elitist, 
and I live in the London bubble just as you live in the New York bubble. Mm-hmm. But we're not the ma- majority. You know, there's no. something going on out there that we probably don't even can't quite understand. Absolutely, because it seems to us to have no, you know, it seems unreasonable and and stupid. <laughs> yeah, just as the reverse does to to our reciprocal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, you know, it's interesting in a sense, because Archigram, I mean, as you mentioned, like, there wasn't necessarily as much political intention behind Archigram. No, not. That being said, though, I mean, certainly, at least in the way in which it figures in the imaginary of architects today, do see it uh, for its ability to present these alternative realities, which is, in a sense, to ask, does an architect need to intend to be political, to have a political effect? I think, I think architects ought to yell out more i mean that in a, in a sense i think that we were we were not afraid to postulate certain ideas that were not fashionable were not discussed very much they tended not to be political though they had a few from time to time certain particular implications but they were more to do with the Again, they were more to do with the product, you know, that we, we, we felt that architecture was a hidebound activity, that it was living, it was producing and living in a kind of straitjacket, mm-hmm. a kind of gentlemanly straitjacket, a kind of you know, comfortable, pleasant straitjacket. Uh, and we found that irritating. The, the other thing you have to bear in mind that Archigram was quite an interesting coalition of people. The age difference was 10 years between the oldest and the youngest. No two people in Archigram had come from the same school of architecture. Wow. Nor had the same taste in women, music, food, clothing, you know, they, they varied. And the two oldest ones had, you know, had, had experienced the tail end of the, the, the period just after the war. Whereas we were the young end. We were kids, we were another generation who hadn't to go into the army or anything like that. And that make, that gives a, a, all sorts of perspectives and the influences. Uh, there was once page of, or some pages in, in Archigram 6 done by Warren Chalk, who was the oldest, and it documented the achievements of the 1940s, which is a period that, you know, for me, I was a tiny tot, it didn't exist hardly. And uh, and document there were all sorts of really intriguing things going on as a byproduct of the Second World War, which have affected architecture. And uh, this is a very intriguing thing that, that you can get a, a condition like a World War that that generates all sorts of of invention and resource and imagination and. You know, and, and left my generation with a whole, whole uh, plethora of extraordinary things if you cared to use them. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I mean, I, I think you know, always war time as a generator of new architectural in, yeah. in, invention, almost. And it's you know, it's interesting too. I was reminded, you know, I mean, particular to our current political condition and the question of being an architect in a Trump era is having a real estate developer as a president and one who envisions the role of infrastructure, envisions the role, of course, of a wall, which presents a certain technological condition that is so immediate to his politics and so immediate to the public claims that there seems to be a particular 
ripeness to that potential for architecture to add. And yet, if you're my generation, remember the Berlin Wall. Certainly, yes. You know, and, 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 and at a certain moment, it just crumbled. I mean, it crumbled by the will, almost the public will, of the fact that concrete was there, but suddenly it had no relevance anymore. I think there are breakpoints, and I can't, I mean, what makes me, even if he built his wall, I, I can't imagine why the Mexicans wouldn't rise up and, and flood it, you know, like just break it, but maybe they're, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, like, there's a certain point it doesn't, doesn't work, but maybe he doesn't care, because that, that point would be decades down the line, maybe, you know. Absolutely, and would indeed necessitate um, an equal resistance from the United States for any sort of uh, disapproval. But I would imagine that, uh, that uh, you know, I have no surprise that the, Can the applicants for Canadian national nationality are <laughs> soaring up. You know, everybody would be heading over to... I think if I was American, I'd head for Canada, <laughs> apart from the climate. But. <laughs> It is quite funny because as an Eng English person, when you, when I come in via Canada, which I have done a few times, it's like the soft, soft landing, you know. And it's very interesting to compare Canada with the United States. It does, is incredibly more civilized. Does Canada figure more liberally now in, in your mind? Oh, much. Yeah, yeah, no question. I, the la a year or so back, I, I travelled up north, northwest, and I went in a car over the border into Canada and then had to take a plane and the, what was interesting was the procedure of the, of the usual uh, security stuff at the airport. It was exactly the same, technically the same, the same bin, the same procedure, the same thing, you had to take the same things out, but the way in which you were treated was totally different. It was civilised and gentle instead of the typical American airport thing where you're barked at as if you're some kind of idiot. Mm -hmm. you, know, you could cut it with a knife, it was really extraordinary because the actual techniques were the same. It was just the behaviour was different. And that tells you a lot about a, a country, I think. So it's interesting now that I think there will be, on the part of European liberals, whoever we all may be, there will be a disinclination to come to the state. There will be just a gradual disinclination to bother if it's going to be like that. You'll just say, well, we don't need it. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, even like me pointing to the airport once again as a critical architectural site. I mean, like, you know, we spoke earlier about sort of a transaction knowledge across generations, both of concerns and history. And I think figuring right now is an emergence and an awareness of these explicit sites of political conflict that are emerging and how architecture can rethink them, if not in a sort of um, a, a sort of covert capacity, right? Um, to design one thing that has a pseudo of our, of our operations. Um, but then if you extrapolate further, you could imagine that the, 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 the Trump kind of guys will hire a certain kind of architect who will make sure that the corridors do a certain thing and the entrances do a certain kind of thing. You know, if you think it through, you, you, know, you, you could very rapidly... You know, Hitler must have used architects to make the concentration camps. And, uh, you know, those guys would find 
a certain architect type type of architect be perfectly willing to to make a kind of vicious controlling type of architecture I would have thought do you have any thoughts on the sort of responsible ethical uh, response from architects on that end within the United States no I don't I think that what are my observation of, of, of architecture in America and it's getting to be much about the same in our country is that the majority of architects you come out of a place like this and have to get a job and they you know a lot of them end up in Skidmore's or whoever it might be and the corporate thing. I mean, it really interested me. I was doing some consultancy a few years ago for, for HOK, actually, in the UK office, in the London office. And there were kids coming out of the AA, which was my old school. Now, in my period, as he says, an old one, an AA graduate was a radical. They were the troublemaker. In the they were the guy who came lippy, full of ideas, got whacked on the head, and then ended up, usually... Having, you know, pursuing the ideas and keeping the office afloat. The new kids coming out of the AA are all ready to be corporate. They're almost being trained to be corporate. And they fit terribly comfortably into that sort of office. I was scared by that. I, and I, when I was teaching at Harvard a couple of years ago, I found that a lot of the conversations I had with my own students, uh, they were talking about a lot of their friends who very who were gearing themselves ready to go into the big corporate offices. Now the ones that I made friends with particularly tended to be sort of saying, you know, that's not going to be me. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but this was a discussion that, that so many people coming out of particularly Ivy League schools, but virtually anywhere, are already playing the game to be office acceptable. I find that very, very scary. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of young architects... Um, now, if they're already doing that now, yeah. you can't expect them... They won't be radical. You know, They're already not radical. They yeah. don't have it in their stomach to be radical. It's a very, I think, a, a tricky game for a young architect to balance the needs of, say, student debt at a university, like an Ivy League university. Yeah, I mean, we have that, we have that in London. A kid, you know, somebody comes out of college and... and uh, London, if they stay in London, it's a very expensive city. And, you know, maybe they, they like eating out. You know, they can't afford a car, but they mm -hmm. certainly can, you know, they eat out and it costs a certain amount of money. And, you know, they can't do that existing on one small conversion for their uncle, you know, or even, you know, uh, and they, 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 they gravitate to the offices, the big offices that can carry them. And then, you know, five years, ten years down the line, they're lost anyhow. But they're already being made an associate or vice, you know, all these titles that you get in big offices. And it's too late. If radical work is sort of being constrained within this sort of new uh, connection to more corporate firms, do you think that it migrates to new sites of production? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I was very interested in, in we did one building in Australia, which I see you use as your poster. Mm -hmm. And I was intrigued that in Australia, there seemed to be quite a lot of relatively small firms that are doing interesting stuff. The, the, the thing that really surprised me uh, was that the building technology there, the actual way in which get buildings get made, is actually quite sophisticated. More, we were 
concurrently doing a building in Austria, which you think is a longer tradition, a sophisticated country, blah, 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 blah. But it's relatively fall about by comparison with Australia. And countries like that, I think there's some interesting young architects, you know, that you meet in places like Taiwan. I think they're interested. You know, here and there, in small places, Portugal produces some amazing, you know, Chile, which I visited a couple of years ago. I mean, uh, those are the places where I think the radical architecture will happen, actually. It's Not in the USA and Germany and whatever. I think it's going to be in... It's, you, you track, you look at what is... I, I sit sometimes on juries, you know, run by Architectural Review or, or WAF and all these things. And the really interesting stuff comes often from somewhere. You thought, didn't even know there were <laughs> people doing stuff out there. You know, you get something funny from Winnipeg or something funny from, from, from um, well, Mumbai, okay, is a big town, but, but you get funny, funny things from funny places. New Zealand produces amazing houses and so on. I mean, places that you don't, they're, they're, they almost weren't on the radar 20 years ago. And I think that make, gives one hope, but it will come from odd places. And then if that connects through to the... You know, it depends what happens in China also, to what extent they will ever develop a, a middle scale of architectural operation. At the moment it's still controlled by these big agencies. You know, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, I think the pattern... The pattern I'm an optimist, fundamentally. I just don't think it'll happen here. I don't think it'll happen in London. I don't think it'll happen in Dusseldorf. You know. I don't think it'll happen in Paris. I think it'll happen in, in small places. Well, it's hard to find a difficult place to end this conversation, but I think <laughs> fundamental optimism is, is a good one. Uh, yeah, because it will happen somewhere and then eventually yeah. trickle back. Yeah. Yeah. In constant, constant flux. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking. Okay. We appreciate it. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.